We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm sorry, that's not right. We're in 1 Kings chapter 15. Oy vey. I'm in Corinthians in the afternoon. We have two studies. See what happens. Yeah, there's your joke. Uh, I'm a dork. And if you're kind of new to Scripture, this is kind of a, you know, you might think this is kind of a wonky place to set foot into a, into a Bible study. We're looking at something that took place roughly 3,000 years ago, and it really is a succession of kings. Whoop-de-doo, am I ever going to meet these guys ever? They've been dead for 3,000 years. You know, even if I stand before the Lord, it isn't like I'm going to go look and go, I'm look for, hey, you're Asa, how cool is that? You know, and, and so there's got to be more to it than unless you're just kind of a person who really loves history. There's got to be more. Now, I was a person who never liked history until I got saved, I'll be honest. And one of the reasons is I'm kind of, I was always kind of like, the past was never that pretty for me. So the future always, you know, that was uncharted territory. So there was something exciting about that. But anyways, but then I fell in love with the Lord and I realized that his history is amazing. Stories of God's faithfulness and men being doofuses. Doofi? What's the plural of that? Uh, And so what we really have, though, if we look at it, is he goes through this list. Now, first of all, do you guys see that list on your on your tables? Because it's really going to help you. Do you notice that there's a left and a right hand side? Uh, For those of you who really have no concept or context into this, uh, really, the left hand side is basically Israel as we know it today is broken up into two categories in a civil war. I mean, on one side, there's sort of like Team Captain Judah. You know, and on the other side, there's like Team Israel Man is kind of the idea here. And uh, one side of it, the south, it's two tribes. Really, it's Judah and the southern tribe of Benjamin because they happen to be neighbors. Uh, rolled by, in essence, the, the descendants of King David. Uh, and then on the other side, in the north, and that's the majority, ten tribes. They're kind of ruled originally by David's son's commander that then it just goes from one crazy thing to another. Now, if we're going to look at this, and so I want you to keep up. We're going to look at three basic people tonight. We're going to look at two of them that are, and if you look at the way that I've printed it out, notice that they're two different colors. It's a little subtle, but the reason is it helps you to know the first two kings we're going to look at are actually Judean kings. In other words, they're descendants of David, uh, Abiyam and Atzah. Then we're going to look on the other side. Meanwhile, back at the camp, we're going to look then at the king of Judah, I'm sorry, of Israel, named Nadav. And ultimately, we'll get to Baasha next week. Now, here's the key point for, for all of us, and then we're going to pray and dive in, is that ultimately God's going to give us a blip on each of these people. He's going to go, here's a guy, and this is a couple of things that are kind of noteworthy, and he reigned for about this long, and then he died. And then there's another guy, and this is a few things he did. And chances are, if you're going to look at the side that's sort of the lineage of David, they're going to be like, how does he compare to David? Is really the idea here. Did he, was he faithful like David, or was he just a big jerk like David's son and grandson? Well, in, in, so he, he kind of plays that out, and, he goes, and then he died. And then there was this other guy, and meanwhile, back on the Israel side, you don't even have to wonder whether they're good or bad. Every king is just a jerk. So that's pretty safe. Israel... Just 19 jerks in a row. Jerk, 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 jerk. That's kind of the idea here. So you kind of know that, but he kind of goes, here's a point that you should know about, and here's a point, and here's the kind of point as I look at it is, we're looking at the sum of a human being's life in a handful of verses. Now, I don't know what that would be for you, or for me, to be honest, but we kind of look at that as sort of an epitaph, 
you know, in essence, a statement. But what if it were that someone who knew you, for instance, if you were married and you weren't married for quite a long time, and I don't mean that in the sense that you, well, congratulations, you made it, but did you just live long? Well, sooner or later, what if you were to pass away and you were to say, all right, you know, honey, will you just give me five sentences about my life so that the world would remember me by five things that you say are most characteristic of me? So that when people read it, they go, oh, yeah, that's him. That's definitely him. Well, that's what God's doing here. And so we can learn from every one of these people because for some of them, what we're going to find is, wow, that guy's a jerk. Don't want to be known for that. And then there are other people that you're like, wow, that guy was pretty cool. But here's a warning. I should probably take that warning carefully because here's the cool part. I mean, I look at the room and it's kind of a scary thought. I think of the oldest guy here. And... And it's kind of like, tell us another story, Grandpa. You know, and, and, and I look at that and I think, man, that, that means the years in between your age and my age, you still have choices to make. I, I'm done with those choices. I can't go back and make them, but you can. I mean, and you can make choices that if, if you lived for one more week, and that's no prophecy, but if you lived for one more week, what would that week say? So that people could look back and go, oh, that guy. Oh, let me tell you. Yeah, that's pretty fair appraisal of who he is. Let's face it. If you were, if you were in one of those moments where your life flashes before your eyes, chances are it's not going to be the most boring moments unless your life's just boring. But, uh, you know, it's like usually it's going to be these moments that are kind of landmark moments. You know, the moment you fell in love, the moment you got that scar, the moment that you got out of prison. I mean, whatever it was. But you know, those moments that you kind of look back and if you think, well, what were the definitive moments for me? You know, the moment that I first met her, the moment that I found Jesus. And then the moment that I opened up his word and realized, wow, this is awesome. Because what we're going to look at in the people's lives are some of them, even the best moments weren't good moments. I wouldn't want that said of you. So pray with me and let's jump in. God, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of being able to be in your word and to study you and to know you and, and to trust, Lord, that you pull no punches here. It isn't like you're, you're, you're going to say, well, this guy was really great when he wasn't. But you do give us moments where you show us real highlight moments of people that have done good things and then other people who just didn't. Lord, help us to learn from this for the choices we will make for the rest of our life that start right now. I mean, we've made a good choice. We've decided we've made a choice to come here tonight. That's a great place to start. And now it's raining outside, so I don't think anyone's going to want to flee. So, Lord, redeem this time so that we'd be so glad we came. And then we'd be able to say, wow, that was so what I needed. And in that, Lord, may we have so much in your word. May it be so alive and so rich and so meaningful as it is that no matter what culture or language barrier we could have come in with, you overcome all of those so that we get it. We get it. We get it tonight. And Lord, save, transform, encourage in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say like I would any night, please don't just believe me. Don't ever just, any guy who ever says whatever he says must be taken as fact, cut the cord and run. I mean, the Bible tells us to test everything, and I believe the word. And so test me in that as well. Okay, here we go.
Now, I remind you, there will be a comparison, you know, and the idea of it is there will be a certain amount of years in one king, and then the guy on the other side is going to reign, and that's where we start this. The first two kings, I remind you, Judah, the sides of David. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abiam came king over Judah. Abiam or Abia is mentioned as both, means my dad is God. Now, first of all, I think you should be a little careful. What dad in his right mind names his kid, my dad is God? Well, that should tell you a little bit about how messed up it is already at this moment. And by the way, we are going to find, we're going to go right for the throat of a really key, funky thing that people like to bring up. We'll, we'll get there in a moment. That's just a wet your whistle. It tells us he reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Ma'acha. Try that, Ma'acha. Because you want to pronounce every letter. Like some of the languages you naturally speak, you pronounce every letter. I like Italian for that. It isn't like, you know, if it's a, if it's a letter, you say it. In English, it's like, oh, that's a silent. Oh, great. That's great. You know, and then you have all these other words. It's like, what's up, bra? It's like, was that brava? And that got brav. Now it's bra. You know. Anyways, all of that. Forgive me for the diversion. In all of this, maacha. Now, maacha, by the way, means oppression. And already I start to think, who names their little girl? Oh, let's call her oppression. That would be perfect. She's the granddaughter of Absalom. Perhaps you're familiar. Abishalom is Absalom. That is. David's son. By the way, the one who wanted to kill dad to take his throne. That should tell you something. What good breeding that is. So you have, if you think about it, you have King David, but he has this son who wants to kill his dad to take the throne, who has a son who has a daughter whose name is oppression. And God wants to mention her here. It isn't like he's going to do that with a lot of people. He's going to go, by the way, check it out. And this guy's mom's name was also kind of funny. Check this out. It's like wonky. You know, he's telling us this for a reason. And I want to remind you, the language that these names are is actually the language that they spoke. So it isn't like, oh, your name is Irene. Oh, that's really sweet. Isn't that Greek for peace? And you're like, how would I know? I'm English. You know, but I mean, but like in America... You know, in the United States, and I'm part Cherokee Indian. And though there was a native tongue for a lot of the native speaking or Native Americans, English was still, for the most part, a very natural tongue. And so the reason I say that is they would name children things like runs a lot. Well, you kind of get an idea. Well, I guess I know. And the reason I say that is no matter where you went, you kind of knew runs a lot meant runs a lot. It was the same language you spoke. So the idea of oppression. Now, so we've got this guy. He's a king. He's a king for three years. What do we learn about this guy, by the way? Well, it tells us this. He walked in all the sins of his father before him and which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that... God had commanded him all the days of his life, except that matter with Uriah the Hittite. Now, here's where we start this. Now, there's going to be a story. There's another whole list of stories about these guys in the Chronicle letters, which will be the ones that follow the kings. And there's this whole story, by the way, of this guy, Abiyah. And the whole story basically kind of goes like this. 
that there was this battle. In the, in the battle, by the way, uh, it was sort of a civil war. And I remind you, this, this is the guy of the South. He's the South Side boy. The South Side boy. And in that, by the way, he kind of basically g- gathers his crew, and they go and they take on the guys in the North. And by the way, by God's grace, they still win, even though this guy's a jerk. And yet God doesn't mention it here because here that's not the part of the epitaph he wants us to get. All he tells us here, if you think about it, was that this guy was unloyal. He goes, you know, he was just like his dad who was also unloyal. And and it's an interesting word for God to use if you think about it. It wasn't like he was just rebellious or he was nasty or he was just horrible or he was mean and he kicked puppies and he slapped nuns. It wasn't just like he was a bad guy. God uses a word that has to involve a relationship. Think about it. For a person not to be loyal means I'm offering my heart to you and you pretend or maybe started to appear to offer your heart, but you just weren't there for long. And that's really the story of this guy. He was just unloyal. And it says there was a war between Rehoboam and Yeroboam all the days of his life. I remind you, that's the south and the north. The rest of the acts of Abiam and all that he did, are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between him and Yeroboam. Abiam rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David. And then Atzah, his son, reigned in his place. That's all you get about this guy in this particular version. Now this is what we get. Look at what it says. It says, he walked in the sins of his father, which he had done before him. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. And yet God, in spite of all of that, still let his son be king. He's like, he could have done otherwise, but he didn't. Now, could you imagine if this would be what you're known for? We have these pastor friends, by the way, in the United States. And there's this one guy, and he is ridiculously gifted as a communicator. He, um, he, he's a sort of a little guy, and he's really funny, and he's very entertaining, and he's very gifted to actually unpack scripture. So you're like, oh, I get this. Even harder texts. And he could keep you captive for an hour and 15 minutes and you wouldn't have even known it. And the guy that he was pastoring this church and this church just exploded to about 15, 20,000 people. Ridiculously large. And with that, he was in essence a celebrity in that sense. And, and to be honest, he could have been known for that until he was caught being unfaithful. And here's the sad part. For all of the years that he may have faithfully served, there are 15,000 people that will not remember him for that. Because of uh, and what it turned out to be was it wasn't just, as most cases, not a single choice, but it was an inching away from the Lord and an inching towards something else for quite some time. And it had become an alternative lifestyle to, he was living two lives. And the reason I say that is, is that that poor guy, I mean, granted, when the dust all settles, it still doesn't negate the word, still the word of God, and he was still used to minister. But yet in all of that, the guy's going to just be remembered as the guy who really blew it in front of an awful lot of people. And he's not the only one who's been like that. And please don't let that be you. I mean, the hard part is, is that means it requires a discipline and a commitment to make the right choice every time. But you know what? It is worth it. It is worth it because you just don't want to be at that place where 
You have to stare in the face of somebody who one moment ago looked at you heroically and now looks at you like you were the biggest jerk because of a choice you made. I had a good friend that lived in our area that he was that way. he looked like George Clooney. You can imagine the guy was he was bait for all kinds of problems if he wasn't careful and he wasn't careful. And we would sit together, man. We would sit together once a month. I would gather all the pastors together in our area and I'm like, you guys, we need to be honest and, and vulnerable with each other and transparent and go, what are we dealing with? What are we struggling with? Because we need to be each other's accountability because let's face it, you can't just tell this to anyone. And he was just like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Well, clearly he wasn't. <coughs> let's look at the next guy. Verse 9. So we have Abia, the unfaithful, uh, the unloyal, I'm sorry. Verse 9, in the 20th year of King Jeroboam, and I remind you, he's the king of the north, king of Israel, Atza became king over Judah. Now, Atza, by the way, his name means healer or doctor. It's a good name. Of the kings in Judah, eight of them really aren't bad. In essence, roughly about between a third and a fourth of them are not bad. Four of them are reformers. They're going to do more than just not be bad. And please hear me on this. There's a big difference between not being bad and being good. Does that make sense? But when you talk to somebody and they're like, no, no, I'm cool. God's going to let me in. Why? Well, I don't. I'm not bad. I'm like, but what if God only let in the good? Well, I don't rape and I don't steal and I don't kill. Well, that's a real comfort since we're having this conversation. But would that be good enough for you? If God let in everybody that just didn't rape, kill, and steal but they were really, really bad outside of that, would you want them as your neighbors in heaven? Well, us is going to be more than just not bad. He's actually going to do some really good things, but... In the 20th year of king of Jeroboam of Israel, Atza became king over, over Judah, and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. He'll see the reign, by the way, of eight Israeli kings. His grandmother's name was Maacha. What? We keep getting reminded of this gal of oppression? Well, that's fun. The granddaughter of Absalom. Yeah, as if we didn't remember. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Because look at what it says in verse 11. Atza did was right in the eyes of the Lord as did his father David. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. We have David, and then we have Solomon, who, by the way, goes off the rails into the end of his life. A thousand women. That's crazy. And then from that has a son who's horrible, who from him has a son, who's horrible, who from him has a son, this guy, who's not. That's amazing. And here's the point. There is this concept that has been pitched in some churches that they call a generational curse. I don't know if you've ever heard it. But the idea is, oh, and usually it can come from some of the more vibrant, colorful background uh, churches. But it's like, oh, here's the idea. If your mom was bad, that badness gets dumped onto you. And oh, and I tell you what, man, if like your great-grandmother was like a witch, 
Oh man, if she was a witch, well then that curse comes onto your head and your head is going to die because great grandma was a witch. You know, and it gets really crazy because what happens is you're like, yeah, but I gave my life to the Lord, but I guess I'm always going to be like low class Christian because my great grandmother that I had no choice in the matter was a witch. witch. I mean, and the, the reason I say that is, is, and then they pull out a particular text. And they say, well, doesn't it say that when God's telling the Ten Commandments? Doesn't he say visiting the iniquity to the third and fourth generation? Well, hello, generational iniquity sounds like a generational curse. And I say, hello, have you read the verse? Let me read it for you just in case. And if you have your Bible, check it out yourself. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 5. This is what God says. And I love clearing these things up because, listen, whoever is in Christ is a new creation, y'all, y'all knew. You do not have to worry. This is what it says. You shall not bow down and serve them. God's talking about making idols. He says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. Boy, those are key words. But showing mercy to thousands to those who love me. And keep my commands. Now look at If your dad was an alcoholic, you may actually have learned how to be an alcoholic, whether you drink or not. You've seen modeled in front of you somebody in a hard time, turn to the bottle. In a good time, turn to the bottle. Alcoholics have a tendency to be like, it's a really bad day. I really need to go and get comfort from the bottle. It's a really good day. I need to reward myself with the bottle. Strange, isn't it? That both sides of it still end up in the same place. Well, the point is, is you may have gone, well, somewhere inside you've watched this model. It's been a hard day. Maybe I should go to the bottle. Well, I get that. You can watch bad habits. You could watch violence. I grew up with violence, a lot of violence in my household. I watched a lot of that. And I grew up violent. I grew up in a street that, by the way, was very important to be a bit violent. Now, I'm not in any way endorsing it. They kept me out of a serious relationship. I don't know if you know this. My wife is the first girl I ever asked out. Did you know that? And I was like, man, I am not going to pursue anyone if I think I'm going to be that because I don't want any household to look like that ever again. That include mine. But then when I gave my life to Jesus Christ and I became clear I'm a new creation, I realized that is not my house because that is not me anymore. I'm, that old guy is dead and buried. And that is the difference between accepting Jesus Christ and any other religion or politic you want to join. Everything else in the essence is your house sucks, clean it up. Isn't that really what it is? Paint it nice, you know, sturdy it up, do whatever you need to do. But in the end of it all, your life's messed up. Now clean it up and maybe God will be okay with you by the time you're done. But you do all the work. And then the scripture says, on the other side of that, we are guilty before God. He should punish us, but he punished his son instead so that he could pay your debt. And he's like, could you just hand me you and I'll do all the work. You'll be my construction project. I did all, God's like, God did all the work and he just wants you to say yes to it. And now he says, now that I did all that, can I do it in you? Can I give you this whole new life? So you don't have to drag that with you anymore. My wife, who by the way, I've been married to now over 27 years. Can you imagine that? It'll be 28 years in November. Yeah, glory to God, we'll pray for her. But it's like, she has never even seen me angry. She's never even seen that. In the beginning, and some people are like, there are people that always want to solve a problem right away. 
You know those kind of people? Like someone's kind of like, well, no, we're going to argue about this now until, and we're going to just keep arguing about it until we get it resolved. Like that ever happens. So, you know, and she'd be like, button, oh, I'm going to push your button. And I'd just leave the room. She's like, oh, you used to get me so angry when you left the room. And I'm like, I'm not going to let that girl push my button until I get angry. Now, the reason I say that is this, is that this guy, Atsa, is a decent guy, but his dad wasn't. And his grandpa wasn't. And what's clear is, grandma wasn't either. And we're going to find she's doing all kinds of really funky things in the house. And in the house of the Lord. But this guy takes the throne and he's like, you know what? It ends here. I'm not going to carry this on anymore. This is wrong. Now, that's the point. And again, if you want the verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. By the way, it doesn't just say if you, if you came to Christ, you became a new creation. If you're still in Christ, you're still a new creation. And I love that. It just continues to happen and happen and happen. Verse 11 says, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as did his father, David, great-great-grandfather, by the way, if you will. He banished the perverted persons from the land. Wow, that's where it starts. Key word, by the way, the word for perverted is kadesh. The word for holy is kadosh. It's a dot different. It's why you should wear glasses when you read Hebrew. Trust me on this. I always, every time I read Hebrew, I used to teach Hebrew classes. I'd always wind up getting glasses. And then after the next time I taught it, I'd actually have to get a stronger strength of glasses. And they're like, why? I'm like, because a dot turns things from perverted person to holy kind of key in scripture to know the difference so the first thing this kid does this guy asa is he by the way he goes all right look at and all this is these are male prostitutes primarily is what we're looking at here and he's like how in the world did you guys get hired by the church in essence to serve and somehow think god was happy about this that's the world this kid's in and he removed all the idols that his father had made so you can bow down anything but notice in verse 13 he removed Ma'aka, his grandmother, from being queen mother. That's why God kept mentioning her. Guess what? She happened to be a really important part of this because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. Now, I want to say this carefully to teach and to make clear, but I don't want to be crude. It is a pillar. It is a pillar and it is obscene. Do I have to tell you any more than that to, for you to know what it is? I'm sorry to even say that much. Here's the most amazing thing. It was in, it was in the church. It was in the temple. Imagine showing up at church and there's this giant pillar at church going, wow, you just don't see that at every church. And I don't know, there's just something wild about the idea that Asa cuts it down. He doesn't just tear it down or whatever, but he just hacks it with, a, with an axe is the idea. And I don't know, but as a guy, there's a part of me that's like, glad I wasn't there watching that. And then he burns it at the brook, Kidron, the same brook, by the way, that Jesus will walk through when he's actually going to trial and going to be executed. And I have a couple things to say. One is if your God could be burnt, well, you really have the wrong one. You know, if he could be cut down, you have the wrong God. But let's face it, for a lot of people, that pillar really is their God, if we're going to be honest. And when it makes its way into the church, or in this case, into the temple, you know there's problems. 
By the way, interesting, because Jesus will say the same thing about one of the churches in Revelation chapter 2. When he talks about it, when he says, by the way, uh, <clears throat> it's um, Thyatira, and he goes, look at, you allow, like, I have this against you. You allow that woman, Jezebel, she calls herself a prophetess, but she teaches to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things, sacrifice idols. He goes, man, everybody that's going to lay down with her is going to get sick. And, and then I talk about thorough. God says, and I will kill them with death. That should do it. If there's something that's going to kill you, death should definitely kill you. Well, and the whole idea of it, God's like, look, it, I gave her time to repent. I gave her time to change. She has no interest in changing. She's like telling everyone, look, it, you could do whatever you want sexually, and God's just totally cool with it. And God's like, I am not cool with it. I am definitely not cool with it. And you see, the same thing is happening here. So this is what happens. This guy comes in and he goes, this whole thing is an orgy, and this is happening, and this is God's people. How in the world did this happen? But the crazy part is, I mean, just think about this, that he has to go against dad and grandpa and grandma, who, by the way, has been sitting on a throne. And imagine he kind of looks and goes, um, granny, nana, um, you're fired. I mean, that's what he's got to do. Now, how, who wants to do that to their nana? That's kind of the idea here. Well, but... And up to this point, if he had just died at that, we would be able to say, this guy was a reformer. Wouldn't that be good that you were known for that? Now, and by the way, it doesn't say, and hear me on this, it doesn't say that the guy was a group of people or a council, or he was an army. He was one guy. And he was one guy that God put in an influential place so that he was willing to stand up and go, this needs to change. And you know what? Any of you here happy with the general condition of the church in our country? I mean, you look at this and you think, wow, this is going to change the world. My daughter, my other one, the one who's not engaged because she's 14, uh, went to just, um, so praise the Lord for that. She, uh, went, she started going to school at a university technical college. And the first day they had a field trip to a mosque. Which, I mean, the school's in Tower Hamlets, so it's, I think at least I kind of get that a little bit. But the first place they went to was this theologian, guy with a collar, Anglican, who f spoke first. And then they went from there to the, uh, to the mosque. And my daughter's texting me while she's actually listening to the first guy. And she's like, this guy's a pushover. And then she went to the second guy. And I, afterwards, I'm like, you're in a unique position to tell me what was your impression of the two guys? I mean, on one side you have this sort of Anglican theologian and on the other side you have this imam. She said, well, the first guy, first of all, I don't think he believed anything he was saying. Second of all, he never mentioned the Bible or he never mentioned Jesus, but he basically was like, we all need to unify for community and all get along and we'll make the world a better place. She goes, and I love this. This is my 14-year-old. She says, you know, in the end of it all, he'd be really good. It sounded like he was heading up a community watch like a neighborhood watch program. He's like, that sounded great. Hey, everyone, let's just join together and keep the neighborhood safe. He goes, but that was it. And I go, well, what about the other guy? Well, she goes, the other guy was confident. He was academic. He was unapologetic about what he believed. She goes, I have a lot more respect for the second guy. Even if he was right or wrong, I just have more respect for the guy because at least he sold out to what he's saying. And I, I was really impressed by that. And I realize 
what Asa had here is when he looked at all this madness, is he was sold out to getting rid of this stuff. And that's key. And there are going to be people who look and go, yeah, it's a mess. So if I complain enough, maybe someone will change it. Well, why don't you be the person? What if you're the next Asa in that sense? What if that was what actually wound up on your epitaph? Would it be a cool thing? Because it's always been one person that doesn't bow when everyone else is bowing to the nonsense that changes the world. So why not you? Well, but it does say this, and there's a but. Unfortunately, everything's been good up to this point, and now we've got to bring a but into it. Verse 14, the but the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. Now, I remind you, the last guy wasn't loyal. His dad was known for not being loyal. This kid was known for being loyal. But this is the problem. Is that somewhere in it, he stopped a little too short. Now, the high places, don't miss this. The high places were other places. And the general consensus is it was places where people still tried to worship the right God, just not in his way. So it was kind of like, well, we're going to worship God in a way we feel is cool, even though it's not necessarily what God said we should do it. So what happens is, well, look, High Hill looks cool. Let's just kind of do that. And so this, the problem is, is you can't do sacrifice on a high hill. And the whole idea of approaching God was that an innocent thing died because of your sins, which leads us right to the cross with Jesus. Up on the hill, on the other hand, you just kind of, let's make it up as we kind of go along. But God, that's kind of the way it is. But you remove the whole worship by sacrifice thing. And the church can do this too. You know, we build a lot of good reforms. Like, hey, we need to get rid of that. That's a problem. We need to take care of that. That's a problem. But we don't go back to that place of sacrifice to start the church over with, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. And if the church is built on anything other than that, it's going to be political, roughly cool, but it's not going to last. In the end of all, it has to be about this. My walk started with God the moment I said yes to the gift of Jesus. And nobody else's walk with God started any other way. That's what scripture says. It isn't like one day you just woke up and decided you were married. You mean the idea is you got to make a choice on things like this. And this particular guy had amazing victories earlier in his life, but somewhere down the line, he actually, well, it's like this. He cleaned the house of God, but he just never got to the yard. And that became the problem. Now, what that meant is ultimately the house was clean, but the rest of the world around, well, it was easy for them to go back because it was still available to them everywhere they went. Verse 15, he said, He also brought into the house of the Lord the things in which his father had dedicated and the things in which he himself had dedicated, the silver, gold, the utensils. Now there was war between Asa and Basha. That's the guy in the north. And we're going to find in a moment, his name means wicked or stinky uh, king of Israel all their days. And of course, there's going to be a battle against a guy that's really completely against God and you who's trying to make reform. Now hear me on this and we'll close this up with our last guy in this. We're going to find out that there is a problem here with this guy. Now hear me. This guy looks and he sees the condition of the temple and he's like, this is bad. I mean, come on, that pillar is there and we've got perverted people for hire here and this is church. This is God's people. This is where we assemble. This doesn't look like sacrifice. This is like sex. This is not what God intended. Not here. Not this way. And he looks and he goes, this is going to go. And now he's got a position to do something about it. And he goes, it's out. And grandma, you're fired. And this stuff is getting out. And get rid of that. And go, well, I'll, I'll take care of the pillar. Give me an axe. I mean, this guy's serious about that. But somewhere in after that, he's like, I have cleaned out the house. But then he's like, okay, now, 
well, let's let the rest of it work its way out. And maybe you have that. Maybe you're known for that. As someone who has these big moments, you know, where it's like you kind of go, whoa, in my own life, this is messed up. Okay, big change, big change. And then the big change happens, and then you're like, okay, now I'm going to cool off again. And, but the problem is if you have to keep making big changes, that means you keep receding back to a place where you need to make big changes, and that's not a good place to be. And we're going to find that at the end of his life, obviously that's a problem. So hear me on this. So it says that... Uh, and there's a story, by the way, for what it's worth, in 2 Kings 13, where Elisha, Elisha, Elishama, goes to the king at that time. His name is Yoash. That's, this is a spoiler for future events. And the guy, Elishama, the prophet's going to die. And he kind of comes up to the king and he's like, all right, king, this is what I need you to do. And I want you to basically play Hawkeye for a moment. And I want you to go and I want you to kind of put an arrow in and shoot it. But I want you to take these arrows and I want you to bang them against the ground. And the king just kind of went, okay. Sure. And the prophet looked and he went, that's how you got? He goes, you know, if you had actually banged the floor a few more times, you would have completely routed your enemy. But he goes, you realize that was such a good example of where you're at with God. You're like, yeah, it'd be cool, but at this moment, it's just kind of like, yeah, I'm going to... Check me out. I am holy that was what we're going with here. And he's like, you know, if you were full on, you'd have full on victory. It's just that simple. You want to play this uh, thing and then somehow God's going to like molly cuddle you in this? He's like, step it up, man. I gave you strength for a reason. No, I want you to be full on. I remember when I first got saved, I was 19 and it was a mess. I mean, I was really and I'm not proud of this, I was a really good sinner. And I don't mean that like, check me out, I was awesome. I was a, just a big, fat, horrible person. Well, maybe not fat, but big and horrible. And in, in all of that, I remember kind of getting saved and then going, God, make me normal. And I could almost hear God laugh. He's like, you were so full on to destroy everything else, and now you think I'm not going to have you be full on for me? Because how does that make sense to you? I'm like, you're right, Lord. Well, here's the situation. When you start doing house cleaning, but you're not full on, you know where it surfaces? In a trial. Because in a trial, see, when you're full on, you turn to God because he's right there. But when you're kind of playing this double life and a trial hits, he's an option instead of the option. And you often don't go to him until you run out of other ones. And it starts to surface there. So hear this. Baasha, the stinky from the north. That's his name. Remember, wicked stinky. King of Israel came up against Judah. Now there's that civil war again. And he built Ramah. By the way, that's where Samuel was from. Those of you know who anointed, by the way, David. Five, six miles north of Jerusalem. That he might not let any go or come into King Asa, king of Judah. Now, by the way, when you're actually seeking to be godly, you know there's going to be trouble. God promises that whoever desires to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. But if you're living a double life, these things are going to show you the surface on it. There are opponents that stand, but it tells us he was loyal. He just, man, he just should have finished well. Well, there were opponents that stand against you face to face. Let's face it. You, you want to love the Lord and someone. Have you ever had anyone come and go, my job is to corrupt you. I've had people tell me that. My job is to make you sin. My job is to make you fall. My job is to get you drunk. And I'm like, well, guess what? We ain't hanging out anymore. What do you mean? Well, thank you for making your, your intentions clear. Why would I want to hang out with you when that's your goal? 
That's like my goal is to stab you in the face. Guess what? We're done. Yeah. And you're not coming near me. And there's a thing called a restraining order. Anyways, and, you know, and it's like there will be opponents that will stand against you face to face. Let's be honest. But then there are also those other people, and they're more surreptitious. They're more sneaky. And when you start really growing in the Lord and you fall in love with the Lord, there are going to be other people that are just, and you may not know about it right away, they're just going to try to make other people not go near you because they know how dangerous you are in your position. And those are the harder people because often those are the same people that look like really close friends for quite a while. Until you're like, wow, you've been doing all of that? I had no idea. Now there's this battle. Asa in the north now, he is stopping people. I'm sorry, not Asa, but Asha, stinky in the north, has now built up a fortress to stop people from going down to the south. And it says in verse 18, Then Asa, I remind you, that's the good king in the south, took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house, and he delivered them into the hands of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad. By the way, his name means son of the false god Hadad, which means mighty. The son of Tibirimon, which is, my God, or good as Rimen, who is also another false god. The son of Hetzion, which, by the way, means I have a vision. King of Syria who dwelt in Damascus. Now here's the idea. The king in the south... He was already experienced great victory at turning to the Lord. The guy in the north, Stinky, comes out and builds this fortress and he knows there's going to be a war as a result of it. This is one of those moments that's going to flare up. Now, the guy in the south, I remind you, he's cleaned out the Lord's temple, but there's still a part of his heart that's not, that's still not totally relying on the Lord. This battle happens and he goes, what do I do? Now, traditionally, he's turned to the Lord and God's really routed an invincible army. And there are great stories when we get into Chronicles. I don't want to blow that. But... But now he's for this moment, he kind of turns and he goes, you know what we really need to do? Let's go just get back up on the farther north than them. And we're going to hire those guys to come down and strike them. Well, you're going to have to pay him something. So he's got to rob God's house. And then he's going to ransack his own just to pay those guys. Does that make any sense to you? Because we do it too. You know, a moment where we're walking with the Lord and things are good and then something weird happens and we feel like we have the right to do something questionable, unethical and something we know God's not going to be proud of because somehow we think that's what we have to do to make it happen. Well, unfortunately, that's what this guy is doing. So he's, he sends these guys up to the guy. Now, again, you, here's, here's Judah, here's Israel, and here's Syria above them. So he contacts the guy so they have to somehow sneak past all of Israel, get up there and talk to the guy up there. And he says, let there be a treaty between you and me as there was between my father and your father. See, I've sent you a present of silver and gold. Shouldn't this do it? Bada boom, bada bing. Come and break your treaty with what stinky, Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad heeded King Asa. He sent captains of his armies against the cities of Israel, and he attacked Iyon, Dan, Abal, Beth, and Kinneroth, which, by the way, is the Sea of Galilee, and all of the land of Naphtali. This is the same guy who had an army of 580,000 people who stood against 1 million people as soldiers who, from Zerah, the king of Ethiopia, 15 years before this, called on the name of the Lord and God routed them. And now he's in a situation where it's less a challenge and he's turning to someone else instead. So what happens? The guy in the north was going to attack, but now he's getting attacked from the north. So now beyond him, so what does he do? Verse 21, it happened when Baasha heard it, he stopped building Rama and he remained in Tirza, which was his capital. So it seemed to have worked. Then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all of Judah. None was exempted. And they took away the stones and the timber 
from Avrama, which Baasha had used for building. And with them, King Atza built Giba, which means hill in Benjamin, and Mizpah. So in other words, this guy built this fortress, but then the guy hired mercenaries from the north. So the king, the king of the north is like, no, we can't fight you guys anymore. We have to take care of the area north of us. And then the king of the south said, all right, everyone, grab a stone from over there and let's build our own with it. That's kind of the idea. But notice how this ends. Remember, it's always how you ended. Verse 23. The rest of the acts of Atzah and all of his might, all that he did and the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. Thanks, God. There's something I needed to know. That's a pretty picture. And also rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Notice again, bringing us back, great-grandfather. And then his son, Jehoshaphat, who wants to name their son Jehoshaphat. Uh, by the way, his name means God is judged. His son reigned in his place. This is 41 years later. Now, please hear me in this. The epitaph for Asa would be, if you think about it, it would be like the house cleaner of God, first of all. But unfortunately, he just didn't get to the yard. And that's a footnote I want to avoid. He just didn't go all the way. And he struggled with trusting God when it really mattered, when the battle hit. And you know how that's going to be. Now, why do you think God told us he was diseased in his feet? I mean, all I can look at is, first of all, the fact that he was diseased, not that he had an, an impediment in his feet, not that his feet were broken. If it's a disease, what does that mean? It's a living organism. Isn't that what a disease is? When you have a disease, there is a living organism that is against you. And it somehow has decided to make you its host. And it's made its way to his feet, which is where you walk. And I can't help but think something living hindered this guy's walk. Though he was a decent guy, there was just something living that stopped him from having the walk he could have had. What is that for you? Fear? just not being sold out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, at the end of it, Paul gives these beautiful examples and he tells us, look it, you know that everybody on the track runs in a race, but only one is going to win. Just run in such a way that you win. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I love verses like that. My dad was a professional athlete and I couldn't, I can't fathom this. In Greenwich, where I live, they had a big race in July. And now they're having another one in Hyde Park. And so they're promoting it on the Clipper. That's what I usually take to get home from here. And uh, and so they're promoting it. And then you look at it and it says, well, you give this certain amount of money and you're actually in the race. And what do you get for it? Well, you get a shirt and you get a number and you get a medal just for paying for it. It isn't like you finished and you got a medal. It wasn't like you placed and got a medal. The fact is you paid the money, you entered and you got a medal for it. Congratulations. Guess what? You paid the money. Now, for me, for, forgive me for this, and I don't mean to crush anyone with this, but for me, that makes no sense. Because that means, why even try? What is there to gain from it? And what Paul says is in his day, that when they was running, it wasn't like you were just like, it's cool, I'm on the track. Isn't it just kind of cool to just... I mean, where I live, people, there's 30 or 40 people that jog past my house every day. And some of them have prams, some of them have dogs, some are just running with somebody I think they just really want to go out with, so they're like panting, but they're trying not to look like it, you know. So it's fun to watch, you know. Oh, that guy, he's not going to make it another mile. You know? But 
But in it, you know, you kind of watch. And then every once in a while, you watch this person and you kind of go, okay, now that person's serious. And there's a very different, their countenance is different. You can tell. Usually that's the person that wakes me up at like 5 a.m. because they're running past my house. And when it's pitch black and somebody's running past your house in the middle of the night, you kind of go, okay, why is that kid running, right? But, you know, but it's like there's something about going Olympic. And if you've ever had a friend that's been in the Olympics, I've had a few Man, it's like everything changes. Man, I don't know if you're familiar with some of the Marvel movies, and it's not like I'm promoting them or not, but it's like two specific people, the guys that are the biggest, which is going to be then Thor and Captain America. From my understanding, neither of them juice. First of all, hats off for not juicing. In other words, they don't use steroids. But do you know that they get up at like four in the morning to eat and work out and then go back to sleep because that's part of the regime that it takes for them to do that? And the reason I say that is when they know they need to bulk up, they have every area of their life reflects it. It isn't like, well, you know, Saturdays is the bulk up day. You know, it's, you just can't do that. It isn't like your body's going to go, oh, well, cool. We'll balloon up on Saturday and this will get you through the week. Funny. We think that way with church. It's like, but he goes like, what if we were Olympic with our walk with Christ? Like Paul is telling us that we should be in regards to a guy that runs. And he goes, here's the crazy part. These guys work so hard to get it, an imperishable crown. No, they actually work hard to get a perishable crown. And back in those days, it was laurel leaves. Do you know what that is? That's bay leaves. In other words, after a week of this thing, the only thing you can really do with it is season your soup. That's what you can do with it. And that's what you get for it. He goes, and they do this. Their whole life reflects around this. And he goes, we do it for an imperishable crown. Is it weird to think people work so hard for that thing, but those that get an eternal crown aren't really, really going Olympic at all for this? Is that kind of weird to you? Because Paul's like, it's weird to me. It's the idea of that. Quick story, and we're going to finish this up because we have this last guy. And by the way, he's just a jerk. And there you go. He's known for it. But, but get this. A friend of ours is a guy named Joey who was a professional surfer. I mean, in California, you run into a few of these guys. His dream was to surf and to win Pipeline. I don't know if you're familiar with Pipeline. Pipeline is uh, the north shore of Oahu, Hawaii. The waves are basically 10 to 15 meters high. Uh, that's, and it's not just that it's a three, four-story building coming at you, but it's more than that because the thickness of the wave is really fundamental because that's how long you're going to be held down if you actually get pitched but it's even worse than that because the reason it breaks like that is for coral you ever step on coral it's like razors yeah no fun so here you are it gets really shallow and there you are you're going to try to surf and then you just get pushed down into the razor and then it's like blah 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 for like till you die and that's kind of the idea you have to hold your breath for four or five minutes just to survive and then when you pop up you just pray the next wave isn't there to meet you and that's Joey's dream. Joey's going to go in. He's going to win pipe. And so he gets there. My wife, by the way, lived in that area. So she would watch you know, those poor hui's, you know, those guys that aren't Hawaiian that would get there and have to be towed out or, or worse yet, die. And he would get there the first year. And I think he did, oh, and he got pitched and he got beat up, but he went back. And he worked and he worked and he worked and he trained. And then finally, and of course, if you've ever had that kind of mindset where you're kind of a trainer or an athlete, you have what drives you is the, the, the scene you play out in your head, what happens when you win, if that makes sense. It's like you can kind of picture where all of a sudden it's like, I don't know how, but confetti always falls from the sky and everything's in slow-mo and people are so proud of you and they're like, I love you. you know? And you're like, yes. Yes. You know, that that moment plays out and it's like, of course, the dramatic full orchestra music behind you or the Rocky theme or whatever it is for you. Well, the reason I say that 
as that Joey's been dreaming of. This is what's driving him. And finally he gets the year, and he's close, man. He's in the running at the end, and he gets the wave. And you kind of know at this moment, he's like, unless I really dish out on this thing, I'm going to take this thing home. He gets into that wave, and he cuts hard, and this thing, and it fully barrels. In other words, the whole wave closes on on him on the outside. So he's now sitting in the, sorry, I'm goofy. So he's like, but he's sitting in this wave, and it's like he's driving through this tunnel, and it's, he's just surrounded by water, and he's like, this is it. The only thing that's going to be better than this moment is when I get that trophy, yeah. And he gets there, and he pops out of this thing, and he's like, he's got it. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people on this beach at this moment, and he knows it. And it's like the Olympics where there's the three tiers, and he knows he's going to stand in the middle one, and he already knows the cute Hawaiian girl that's going to give it to him. And he's already he's like, I just want you to know that's going to be mine. you know. And he gets to that point, and he's standing there with two people that are pro surfers for a long time. He's standing there in his mind with giants. You know, and he's there, and, he's, and they go, and they hand him the trophy, and he holds this thing up. And as he's holding this thing up, it rains like Noah. And everybody scatters like roaches when you turn on the light. It's like, bloosh. And there he is. He's like, yeah. Hello. And they're all gone. The moment he had dreamt of his whole life was now him standing there holding this thing up that's getting heavy because it's collecting water from the rain. And that's when he realized. And the reason I say that is, in the end of it all, it is a perishable crown. And he never said, this is stupid. What he said is, it just doesn't, it's insane to think that we should try less hard than that. When we get something eternal, he's like, you know, when I fight, he goes, it isn't like I punch the air. And he goes, and when I run, I don't run aimlessly. Let's face it, every step you take not directly at the, at the uh, finish line is one extra step you don't have to take. And when I fought competitively, we always talk about getting people to waste punches. Every person has only a certain amount of energy. And you're like, well, when are you going to run out? We should be done by now. Well, we're almost there. But you know, it's like, and sooner or later you realize if you can get a guy to waste enough punches, he's going to run out of them sooner or later, right? You just don't want them to hit you in the face. You know, I get that. And Paul goes, if we're really going to do this right, we don't waste ourselves. We don't throw punches where we shouldn't. We don't spend our time aimlessly exerting energy in places that are going to bear no fruit whatsoever because they just don't have anything eternal about them. It's like, where are you at with this? And with Asa, in the end of it all, he did clean the house of God. And for that, God said, way to go. Thank you for cleaning my house because it is almost unbelievable what they shoved in there before you. But in the end of it all, he just didn't finish Olympic. Do you want that said of you? Because I don't want that said of me. Do you know all Jesus had to do was one sin and he wouldn't have been qualified to pay for ours? You realize that? Because he had to be without sin to pay for ours. Imagine Jesus is like, come on, 33 and a half years or 32 and a half years, I've done perfect. Come on. A little sin. What's the big deal? We all go to hell. That's the big deal. Okay, last few verses, will you please? And so let's pray. Verse 25, Nadav, his name means liberal, the son of Jeroboam. He's in the north now. He became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. He reigned for two years. Didn't get long. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yeah, that's a shocker. And walked in the way of his father and in the sin in which he had made Israel sin. But then Baasha, I remind you, that's stinky, the son of Ahiah, 
And the house of Issachar conspired against him in Baasha, wicked, stinky, killed him at Gibbeton, which means mound, which belonged to the Philistines. Now what he's doing there, I really don't know. Mladav and all Israel laid siege to Gibeon. Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. So it was, when he became king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam anyone that breathed. At that point, I think I'd be holding my breath. Until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servant Ahia the Shilonite. That's chapter 14, 10 to 14. Because of the sins of Jeroboam in which he had sinned, in which he had made Israel sin, because of his provocation in which he had provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. And the rest of the acts of Nadav and all that he did, aren't they written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And what's the, what's the epitaph for Nadav? The curse is fulfillment. Well, wouldn't you love that on your epitaph? Now, here was a guy who had a wicked dad, who had a wicked granddad. And he's like, I just want to let you know, well, actually, a wicked dad, that much we can say. He goes, you know what? He said this was going to be done, and you just made it, you just lived it out just the same way. You proved them right. And I don't want that. You know, there are people out there that are expecting you to fail because they're like, Christianity, it isn't real, is it? And you're like, it's absolutely real. And they're like, well... I don't think so. I expect you to fall. Some people are like, it's still a phase, right? It's still a fad. And when you don't go and throw that, throw your Bible in with your ice skates and horse grooming kit and the other things that you think you know you were going to be at one point in your life when you said, I found myself, and they realize this actually sticks, they're going to realize it's something different. So don't prove them right. We are not like everyone else. We really are new creations. And there's the radical difference. This ends, by the way, with a comparison of a guy that came from a bad lot who lived the bad lot, and a guy that came from a bad lot and chose differently. So don't blame your phone. Don't blame your folks. Don't blame your grandparents, and don't blame like your great grandma who was a witch or whatever. In the end of it all, you make a choice in regards to Jesus or not. Let's just be honest. Now, you could try to clean up your own act and all of that, but according to Scripture, we're dead in our trespasses and sin, and dead people rot. No matter how much you put the makeup on them, they're still dead people in the sight of God. But here's the good news. My God gives life to anyone who's willing to ask him. The whole idea of Jesus dying on the cross is so that all that you did wrong could be punished. Who wouldn't want someone else to pay that bill? But then just like scripture promised, he was not only buried, he rose again on the third day. And in raising on the third day, he says, don't you want a new life? Because that's what Jesus offers. He took the old one to the grave and rose a new one up and says, would you like that? I'll make you a new creation. And you no longer have to worry about it. And then you get adopted by the God of eternity. And I'm like, I love my dad. He's perfect. He's the one who created the universe. I want to be just like him. Praise God for that. But that's the, that's the choice you need to make tonight. Will you accept this gift? Or will you be like, yeah, it's good information. I'll think about it. Well, man, what if, you, what if the epitaph had to be written tonight? Do you really want that to end with, well, he said one more time, or, well, she thought, give it another day, but she didn't have it. Man, my suggestion is say yes to Jesus tonight and let him transform you. Will you pray with me, please? God, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. I thank you for what you're teaching us in it, for the way that you've gone before us in it. And I thank you, Lord, that we have these examples before us. We have this example of a person who, by the way, was just unloyal, and I don't want that said of me. And I don't want that said of any of us. 
Now, he he was unloyal, like his dad was unloyal, like his grandpa was unloyal, but he was still unloyal. And in the end, they're not just going to look and go, oh, you're clearly your dad. In the end of it all, they just looked and saw a guy that was unloyal. Don't let that be us. And we confess to you that we don't have the strength to be totally faithful in and of ourselves, but you don't tell us that we have to muster it up, but rather that when we hand ourselves to you, you become our strength. So God, I just pray that there would be no one here whose life is iconized by unfaithfulness, unloyal, disloyalty. But also we have this guy in the middle who's really a good challenge. I mean, in some parts, there are really good things. He took a look and he saw the mess that the temple was and he said, that needs to change and I'm going to do it. I want those things out of here. I want, there's so much that seems acceptable that is not acceptable and I'm going to take a stand even if nobody else does. I'm going to take that stand and say, you know what? I'm going, I'm, I'm going to this thing and I'm going to be real about it. I'm going to get a spine about this. But we also have a warning with him that he still took his hands off of finishing the job in the yard. So the house got cleaned out, but he didn't go beyond that. And in the end of it all, he wound up diseased in his feet. He had something living that took down his walk. And in the end of it all, he wound up making a very poor choice that emptied out the treasures of your house, God, and his own. And I recognize when those things happen and our hearts are in two places and a trial comes, we do rob you and we rob our own homes. And I don't want that side of any of us either. So my prayer tonight is that we go Olympic, that we go full on, that it's like when the choices need to be made, Lord, that everything revolves around fully following you with all of our hearts, to love you with all of our hearts and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. And in that, Lord, that the crown we receive at the end will be one that it wasn't like, congratulations, you actually qualified by paying the money. But in the end of it all, it's like you went for it with all that you had and you left it on the track. Congratulations. Well done. Lord, don't let us fool ourselves to think somehow we could be mamby-pamby and think you're going to say well done because we wouldn't say well done to it. And you know better than us. So please, tonight, don't let that be the case. Tonight, put within us that passion that should come with, the, with you living inside of us. Because when you sent your son, you never gave half. You gave all. And I want to thank you for that. And we don't want to be the fulfillment of a curse. Because we'd rather be a new creation. And you tell us that cursed is anyone who doesn't keep the law. And then anyone who sins and born into it, we're all born into it, are slaves to it. We all start out as cursed addicts. We were children, we were cursed children, and yet, God, you so loved us, you paid the price, and at accepting that gift, we are transformed and made new. And that's the choice. You give us the dignity of making that choice. So tonight, here in this room or at the sound of this voice, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about if you've ever gone to church or if you've ever kind of called yourself a Christian, but if you've not accepted, made a choice and said, you know what? Yes, Jesus, pay that price for me. And yes, Jesus, have my life and make it beautiful. Now make it new. Make it yours. If you've never done that, do that with me right now. You can walk out of here and say, yes, I made that choice. And if, my, if this were done tonight, I am okay with that. Pray this with me. God, I am a sinner. That's what you call it, so I'll call it that. 
I'm not perfect before you. You and I both know that. I've failed. And that doesn't surprise you. And you as a righteous judge, you punish that. But you so loved me that you sent your son to take that punishment. Totally innocent for my total guilt. So that you didn't have to send me away from you forever. And when he died on that cross, all my filth, all my guilt, all my shame was paid for in full. And when he was buried, all of it was buried with him. And when he rose from the grave, just like your scriptures promised, he offers me a brand new life. And you give me the dignity of choice. And so I choose yes. I say yes to your payment. I say yes to becoming a new creation in you and claiming Jesus as my Savior, as my payment, and as my Lord. Have me now. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, and that's your prayer tonight, would you just say with me, Amen. God, you've heard our prayers tonight. Cement that decision. And I pray tonight that we, from this point on, will go Olympic with you. In Jesus' name, thank you for tonight and the blessing of being able to do this. Amen.